0: another episode of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Before we begin, I'd like to just tell you again about this new venture that I have going called Mojo Cables, which is an instrument, a boutique instrument cable company that I've started with my good friend, Matthew Uller, um, aka Matty, um, who is a electrical engineer and a guitarist, and me being a studio owner, we decided that it would be kind of fun to get together and, and solder some cables. So we did a, a heck of a lot of research into capacitance and you know cable lengths and all all the jazz um, and components, and we decided to start this um, this cable company. So we've bought we've got some beautiful Van Dam cables, some lovely Rian connectors um, that are all hand soldered. Uh, silicon sealed and then um, with heat shrink wrapped around and um, so they are as sturdy as you are going to get and um, we are extremely proud of them um, and we are also donating a pound of the sale of every cable to the charity mind um, which is a, an extremely important charity for uh, who are doing great things in mental health and um, so yeah, you can go and check out more about Mojo Cables at mojocables.com. We're also on Instagram at mojocables. Okay, and on to the episode. This um, episode is a conversation with Alex Bennett, who is a Melbourne-based uh, uh, studio owner, engineer, producer. There's um, been a, a bit of a trend of Australians um that I've been speaking to recently um, and I've really enjoyed it getting to know a music scene that I didn't really know much about and speaking to a group of people who I, I hadn't been aware of before um, so yeah it's been really really enjoyable uh, making these episodes. Um, Alex runs a fully analog studio which is in, it's so inspiring he does genuinely has not a single screen at his studio and it's so uh, I, yeah it's brilliant and he's um a young guy who's sort of you know grown up in the digital world and then gone really deep into into analog essentially so this is a really interesting conversation and he's in he's so knowledgeable he, he knows a huge amount about all of this stuff and uh yeah there's definitely one that you need your notepad for <laughs> he um gives lots of little bits of advice and things that you can try there's tons of things I'm going to try after this conversation Um so yeah go and do that. Uh, Here we go. Alex Bennett of Sound Recording. If you could sort of tell everybody about where you're located and what it is that you do, if you can describe it in a, in a sort of a few words, how would you describe how you make your living? Okay.
1: Um, well, I'm located on Jar Jar Wurrung country, which is also known as Castlemaine, okay. um, which is about an hour and a half from Nam or Melbourne in Australia. Um, uh, I run a recording studio called Sound Recordings, and it is a 100% analogue recording facility.
0: Nice, <laughs> yeah. I, I obviously, um, I th- I was following you on Instagram. So just to, to let everybody know, they will have heard it this um, by this time already. So my conversation with Liam Goff, and that's the how the our sort of link up happened. But it turns out I was already following you on Instagram. <laughs> you were one of the people oh, cool. that, that that was there, and um, <laughs> it's a. I mean, it's beautiful. Your studio looks like such a cool place to to be. You've got some really choice gear, and the way that you. Um it's, you know, you're not just putting pictures on there for the sake of pictures. Everything's got a real bit of value to it. And I, I really enjoyed <laughs> scrolling down it and oh, reading all your stuff. I'm glad
1: you think that because I have such a love-hate relationship with um, Instagram and I consider it a necessary evil. Um <laughs> So when I post, I try to make it count.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How did you what was your journey into sort of where you are now i always find it quite interesting um so you've you've kind of landed as a as an all analog studio how how did that begin because you know you, you don't seem you don't seem old enough to have worked no, I, <laughs> worked on analog I, to begin with um I, so i continue to
1: surprise people i think um yeah people often arrive at the studio and go Whoa, really thought you were going to be a 60-year-old person. (laughs) Um, No, I I started sound recording like most people in, um, I'll say, our generation, I'm assuming, Um, but uh, in the digital land. I I did an undergraduate degree in um, music technology at a conservatorium of music. So it was a music degree plus a technology, you know, sound engineering degree um but after that i kind of really fell out of love with it because i realized i didn't really love computers at all in fact i despise them and i can't work (laughs) with them i don't know how to fix them so i I ended up doing postgraduate study in composition um but i ended up over in auckland in new zealand Um, And I was studying composition there, but I landed a job at the university in the music school doing the technician work. Okay. So I was maintaining the recording studios, um, you know, loaning out keys to students, um, fixing the studios, upgrading them, lending gear out, all that kind of stuff. And it was during that time in that job that I had access to the basement at the university of Auckland, which I found all the tape recorders in
0: oh, wow. that were
1: there from, from the electronic music studios in the seventies and the eighties. Um, and I was basically tasked with a job to dispose of gear. Oh, wow. Sometimes um, like at the end of a year, if we had to reshuffle storerooms um, storerooms and, and things and we would come up with piles of stuff that either needed to be fixed or it was broken um, and I would get a quote for what something might cost to repair or service by somebody qualified and the quote would come back and then the university would say, no, we don't want it. Can you just get rid of it? Wow. So I actually inherited um, a tape recorder out of that.
0: Incredible. Um <laughs>
1: that used to be used at the university that nobody, they really just didn't want it because they needed to get a brand new, like Pro Tools rig or whatever for another studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was never part of the syllabus to learn tape recording or tape splicing or whatever. Um, so they just had no no want for it anymore. So that's how I got my hands on my first tape recorder.
0: So you were... Were you interested in in that kind of side of things at that time? What was your kind of mentality? Well, were, you, were you a composer?
1: Uh, yeah, in a sense. Um, yeah, at the time I was building instruments. Um, I was kind of doing electronic composition. Okay. Like electroacoustic music. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's yeah. like creating music with sound for loudspeakers, which is the university buzz Pretty popular in England. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it was cool at the time. Um, but I was also I had this. I was leading this other life where I was I was in a couple of bands, and I would you know on the weekends frequent gigs and stuff. So outside of university, I hung out with people in bands. So it was at that point that I started recording bands again. On this, it was a it was an Otari half inch eight track. Nice, like an MX fifty fifty. That mm-hmm. one. So it was really easy to wheel around and take to people's houses, easy to take to practice rooms um, or in various spaces throughout the university where there was, you know, space to record music. So I kind of ended up becoming like a a mobile 8-track recording (laughs) studio. So I would set up wherever I needed to be and do recordings for friends basically for free at that point
0: and were they um, were they conscious the people that you were recording was for them was it uh was there any appeal in it being to tape or was it just that that happened to be the medium you were working on
1: um a little bit of both i guess i think mm-hmm. there's always appeal i was playing lots of garage punk music at the time and hanging out with um lots of punks and of course tape lends itself to that kind of genre fairly easily and yeah. a lot of people love the simplicity of eight tracks um and a lot was achievable with on that format so yeah i think the technology lent itself to it um yeah i mean to be fair if i listen to those recordings now they're pretty trashy but (laughs) i guess that comes part and parcel with some types of musics so yeah it did lend itself to that yeah
0: were you kind of learning as you went or did you did you you know i'm kind of picturing you with this new eight track that you sort of um, inherited yeah. off the uni and uh yeah. you know you're plugging it in are you just sort of learning as you go or what experience 100%. like yeah. it
1: was nothing like recording with a computer at no. least <laughs> when i had first started i was treating it that way and um <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> yeah the learning curve was steep and i was doing it on my own um, and using the internet. Um, there were a few old school um, teachers in the composition department who were working with those machines in the 70s and 80s making electronic music, um, uh, you know, recording synthesizers and tones and splicing them. And Yeah. So I learned how to splice tape from, um, from one of the old composition teachers there. Um, that was handy, yeah. And but in terms of actually calibrating the machine and aligning it, I had no idea. So I started using it as it came out of the basement, mm-hmm. um, which was it worked surprisingly well in hindsight. <laughs> uh, it would have been in storage for at least ten years, if not fifteen. Wow! Um, and the Otari. So hats off to the Otari engineers. It worked pretty well after not having anything done to it. Um, However, over about, I guess, a um, two or three year kind of window, I eventually learned how to line the machine up. Um, And even to this day, I get better and better at doing that every time. (laughs) There's still a lot of things that I look back on and go, wow, is that really how I did it back then? That is wild. (laughs) yeah. Yeah the learning curve for somebody my age for learning how to um, calibrate a tape machine is, is something completely other world it's from another world you know to yeah. using a computer
0: it yeah. totally is completely yeah um, so then what happened from presumably you finished uni and you still had your atari what's happening yeah. what's happening from there
1: yeah well
0: <laughs>
1: lots i guess a lot more purchasing happened <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: I sold a car
1: that I owned that was still in Australia um, while I was in New Zealand and that um, I sold that at a pretty good time and I turned that money into um, tape recorders and microphones. Love it. I I ordered, um, I came across two um, Ampex 300 decks that used to be in Capital Recording Studios. Oh, cool. Um, just on eBay there was a set of them um, <clears throat> and they were very cheap but I knew that there'd be work involved but um, it was at a bizarre time where oh god what year was it I guess it would have been around 2010 or something and the okay. dollar was really great and it was kind of somehow really cheap to get stuff from America oh cool so cool. I got to you know giant they were in cases that were as big as, you know, washing machines, you know what the Ampex 300 looks like. Yeah. Ampex 350, Ampex 351, um, big silver-faced um recording decks that were all over um, America in the 50s and 60s. So, yeah, so at that time I was obsessed with 50s rock and roll and 1960s recordings.
0: Nice. Oh, cool.
1: So I just wanted to get to the source and get an Ampex because that's what Phil Spector was using. (laughs) Um, That's what the Beach Boys records were made on. That's what like two thirds of the Blue Note records were made on. Like, Mm. so I was just obsessed with American recordings um, from the 50s and 60s. So I got two Ampex machines with the hope of maybe turning them into a four track, but then that became like something I couldn't achieve with the technology that came with them. Yeah. So I ended up just using them both as two-track recorders um, and made a few records that were live to two-track. I made a few records that were live to two-track and then bouncing over, adding stuff to the next layer. So Mm -hmm. really doing it in an old 50s way for sure. Um, Yeah, and from there it just kind of spiralled out of control with tape recorders. <laughs> but I did move back to Australia around then and um, then got a half-inch four-track Ampex. then I got a one-inch eight-track MCI, and now I have a two-inch 16-track MCI as well. So I've now I've got 16, eight, four, two, one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the whole gang. The whole gang. <laughs> How... I'm always, um, I always really enjoy, so starting on eight track is a bit unusual. It seems, um, most people seem to have started, um, you know, obviously I talked to a, to a lot of engineers who were, who were older and they just because they were around, they would start on two track or four track Mm. and then, Mm. and then it would expand from there. So you started on eight track and then almost regressed back to two track and spent a bit of time there.
1: I did. I, I I do liken my journey to somebody from the 50s, ex- except that I started on the 8-track. But that was kind of the stepping stone from computer land yeah. to limiting the, limiting the options at least somewhat to 8. But then because of the music I was in love with at the time, I decided, and the sound, like, you know, the distortions that you hear in um, 50s and 60s rock and roll, I wanted that. You know, I wanted um, those harmonics um, and those kind of room sounds at the time. I wanted to make Little Richard records, you know. (laughs) Yeah, um, fantastic. But with trashy Auckland garage bands, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which I guess, you know, came close maybe a few times. But, uh, yeah, but then from there it's like I I went all the way back to 2 Um, And some of the mixes ended up being mono, so I started off there and then I kind of earned every track count from there because I got them in that order. I then got the the four-track Ampex 440, which is like a 1969 recorder. Um, So then it was like, yeah, four-track Muscle muscle Shoals vibes. Yes. Um, And then I got the one-inch 8-track and exploded back into 8-track land, but it was full fidelity, like, you know, the beginning of the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've only just opened up the world of 16 track with the uh, two inch machine.
0: How are you finding um, it?
1: Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Except the mix downs are a head fuck.
0: Sorry. <laughs> no, of course you can go ahead. Okay.
1: Yeah. So as you know, like mixing down an eight track record is takes un- enough people, you know, it takes two people sometimes with yeah. both hands on the desk to, to get a complicated eight-track mix just right. And obviously I'm always mixing to tape. So we're mixing down to the two-track machine um, and it's a, it's a performance unto itself. I'm sure you understand. Yeah. So eight-tracks was complicated enough for people and myself. <laughs> and then as soon as I got 16, it just it, it, it just absolutely more than doubles the amount of things you have to keep an eye on. Yeah. Um, obviously, the textures and the, the complexity of the image you can create from 16 tracks is amazing mm-hmm. at that headroom with that, with that amount of tape. Um, it's great. But I do often really enjoy now when people want to use the 8-track because it's so much simpler and uh, in some ways better, but it it's down to the band, really. Of course. Of course.
0: How are you finding oh, yeah. your um, people's reaction? So obviously, I feel like this is a movement that's really happening. Um, it's traveling fast now, and you were clearly very quite early to it. Um, I'm talking. <laughs> I'm talking about in our generation of you know. Yeah, I agree. I know that band. what you're talking
1: about, and I'm. I'll, I'll interrupt and say I'm really lucky that I purchased all the tape recorders and most of my equipment like ten years ago. Yeah, that going on that long because now it's definitely not. We're not in the trough, we're in the peak of the popularity. So, sure. But go on, what was your question?
0: <laughs> well, so, so, I mean, bands' reactions. I mean, I remember recording with, you know, when when I was doing original projects and, you know, going to be a rock star kind of phase. And it was none, you know, there was it wasn't to tape, it was all to Pro Tools mm. um, and yeah. Logic. How have you found um, bands' reactions as you've kind of gathered momentum and, and, what, what are they asking of you and what are they surprised about and how do they enjoy the process?
1: Okay. Um, well, firstly, most people don't call me up unless they want to use tape recorders. I think most people don't contact me accidentally thinking I've got computers. So <laughs> I'm not normally in the business of convincing people to use tape, mm-hmm. which is great because yeah. <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with computers. Um, So most people always have an expectation that it's going to be great, you know, when they arrive. Um, But, yeah, on the whole, people have an awesome time. And I would say 95% of people come out of their, come out of the project going, that was easier than any other recording session that I've ever done. And I don't think that that's because of me or anything I've done other than facilitate session in the sense that the technology works
0: yeah
1: but i what i love about using tape recorders is that it's just normalizing musicians um ability to make decisions on the spot like normalize making decisions again is my (laughs) new motto (laughs) like you know when you're in computer land you can do 50 takes of one vocal track And then, like, chop it up later to make it perfect, which is fine. Great. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Um, And it kind of destroys the person putting that together, you know, the artist, really, really. um, I mean, I can't speak for everyone. Some people probably love that. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I, I do love the way that tape recording preserves the performance at least a great chunk of it. Like that said, the MCI decks that I have now um, have really awesome punch in and punch out capabilities. So when it does roll around to the main vocal take, we do drop in on that shit mm-hmm. and get it right. If the singer yeah. wants to do it line by line and then fix one word, we can, you know, that's the equivalent of the Pro Tools chopper. up.
0: Yeah.
1: But ultimately, we'll start with a take from start to finish. Yes. For any overdub, and 98% of it is there.
0: So, yeah. If you've got someone who's come in, perhaps, you know, a band who's not worked in that sort of decision making um, headspace before, do you find that there's a sort of period of um, having to adapt and learn how that sort of feels?
1: Totally. And that's like most people, you know, will come into this studio and have not worked on this technology before. But I just um, I just let people know that it's fundamentally no different to any recording situation you've ever been in before, um, other than we can't shift things in the time domain, um, not individually anyway. So, but I say to people who are worried i just say well i ask do you practice (laughs) yes (laughs) practice okay good do you play gigs well (laughs) this is going to sound funny now given the world (laughs) yes most bands play gigs and i'm like well you know just just play it like you're at a gig or play it like you're at a practice and we'll go from there that's really all it is and if if you can't play if you can't play together in a Rehearsal room, and if you can't do a gig, then you're probably not ready. Yeah. You know, that so. said, I still never turn anybody away. I, as far as I'm concerned, if you want to record, then you're ready ish, mm-hmm. and we'll, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get something, you know. Yeah. But yeah, the, the people who are most worried generally come out of it feeling really great um, because, yeah. because, because of the decision making on the fly and, um I, I guess there is an immediacy. There's a certain immediacy that that I'm able to create with the sounds, I think anyway, that that it does sound very good straight away. Mm-hmm. And I guess I mean, look, part of that's part of that's microphones and technology and the room and whatever, but it's also just I approach recordings from, you know, I don't start recording until it really sounds 95 percent. Mm -hmm. as it's going to be on the record you know i'm not leaving the um not leaving anything up to chance for the mix you know yeah like again that's like a 20 21st century habit of we'll fix it later we'll make it sound good later i don't start recording until it already sounds good so the band come in for the first listen and go oh wow great then we'll start (laughs)
0: yeah Uh, yeah i hear exactly i hear that exactly i think that that's a really important way to approach that doesn't seem to yeah it seems to be like like we've said gathering momentum and it's the way it's the way i record you know i'm doing mainly drum (laughs) sessions and um although i'm not recording fully analog because i'm sending a lot of tracks over the internet um that's a different world yeah yeah it is but then i i will still you know i'm learning learning to play on a song it's playing the song as many times as it needs to be until the part's there and then when it gets to performance you know performance time recording time and maybe do maximum three takes and one of those takes will be the one and it's um, you know and if it's if it happens to be the first one then i'm not going to do two more (laughs) i'm just gonna i'm gonna do it until it's done Um, there's that yeah yeah. So it's a, it's a similar mentality. And I think it's one that can be brought, you know, not everybody's recording in the way that you are, and um, but it's definitely a mentality that can be brought to, to sort of a, any setup, any recording setup mm. for sure. Oh, and then-
1: it can, it can. And I, and I think that people have taken that away with them sometimes as well, you know, cause I, cause I do see people, I do have regular return people and um, regular customers. And I feel like, over the time, some people's opinions and practices have changed as a result of coming here, which I think is a great thing, you know.
0: Absolutely. Because you
1: can you can make decisions and you can deliberately limit your tools if you're using a digital system. You just need to have the um, discipline. Yes. <laughs> um, but here the discipline is imposed by mm-hmm. the limitations of the technologies.
0: I Do guess. you... Um... Do you rent a space? Is it in your house, or how? how what's the actual building like? It is
1: on my property. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it, the studio is separate from the house. It's in a stone building out the back with a. a sh- it's kind of like a shed. Yeah, you know, I, I do. I do admire. I do. I'm thankful that you said you really like the space. But if you could be here in person, it's you know it's dusty and it's kind of cobwebbed everywhere, <laughs> and it's not. It's not like a studio in the city, and. Um, but I like that's I think that's what people like as well, you know. Yeah,
0: it's characterful and it's it, stone
1: building, and um, the mortar falls off everywhere, and it's
0: you know amazing.
1: It, has, it has character. <laughs> but it's a vibe in there that's not like a sterile environment that you might come across in a um, in a in a studio city, and it has natural light. I've got windows.
0: Oh, fantastic! So, yeah.
1: but you can hear things. <laughs> outside sometimes (laughs) Uh, but your question was is it for hire the space sometimes so generally when you come here you come and you work with me Um, that said on occasion sometimes and someone will come for an extended period of time with an engineer who may be someone I know or it may not be and it's generally a case-by-case basis but on, on on some occasions, somebody's come with an engineer who's bought a laptop and an interface and they do their thing. I interesting, help interesting. them get set up in the space and provide them with microphones and line-ins and line-outs and microphone preamps. But if they want to record to tape, I mean computer, <laughs> that'll be when I bow out and they do their thing. So that happens sometimes. But <clears throat> these days I've been outside of lockdowns busy enough with people who want to use the machines. And if that's the case, then it's generally me because um yeah and it's unless there's some 60 year old engineer coming in for an outside session that knows how to use those machines intimately, I'm not gonna just bow out and let someone else use the machines. Of course basically. not yeah. Um, but that's only because I because I tech them myself. So I'm constantly monitoring the machines for performance and making adjustments in every session on the fly. So, you know, um, yeah, so that's the space and kind of hiring model setups.
0: How did you go? I mean, it being, is it stone on the inside or is it plastic? It's not, it, it is. No,
1: it's, it's, it's sedimentary rock from around the area. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it looks the part.
0: So how um, how did you go about tempering it? What's the the acoustic like inside the space? I've done nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. My dad, <laughs> my dad built the building when
1: I was a kid um, for a, a car garage. He's a vintage car enthusiast. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, it was his garage was full of full of English cars. Believe it or not. Amazing. <laughs> that, <yeah. laughs> um, so he just built it, uh, the, and the gable he, there's timber gable ceiling that came from an old plaster factory in town that was being demolished that he bought the the roofing structure okay so the roof line is um of the era of at least of the victorian um gold mining era here Mm -hmm. and the stones are from around the bush back when you could steal stones from the bush to build a building (laughs) you can't do it now because there's none left um but yeah so When I moved back here to start a studio, I was considering using a different part of the property for the studio. Mm -hmm. But then when I, because I I moved back here after living in New Zealand, so I'm living in my childhood home now Mm -hmm. and I'm raising a child here. So that's a whole nother thing. (laughs) (laughs) I've come full circle and um, I was originally going to use different parts of the property for the studio until I went into this um, stone garage and I was you know clapped my hands in there and went well no this should be the it sounded awesome it just Amazing. straight up sounded great and i knew a drum kit would sound sick in there yeah um so i haven't <laughs> honestly have not done anything to that room other than put up a little bit of absorption against one one face of the walls mm-hmm. where all the amplifiers are currently now so there's just some insulation on the wall and some wooden panels that are staggered a little bit for absorption and a little bit of extra diffusion but the infinitely variable surfaces of the stone is just phenomenal It creates a really nice diffusion in there and the the walls are about this thick
0: Um, wow nice
1: listening it it's about a
0: foot yeah (laughs) oh yeah well i i always forget that it's it's a podcast even though this is my podcast podcast. yeah Yeah. so imagine
1: that the stone wall is about 30 centimeters or 12 inches thick Mm -hmm. Um, so it 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 absorbs a lot of low frequencies and it keeps a lot of noise out and i've built some big silly double wooden doors on the inside and outside of the main entrance Mm -hmm. um, that are by no means acoustically designed i'm a real (laughs) hack in that kind of sense um Although I did put a little bit more energy into the control room, which we built out from the original stone structure. Okay. That has a like a double um, stud wall. So it's got two walls, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fairly well insulated. So you, you really can't hear much in there of the outside world. And it's got two panes of glass in the window. and um, But again, the acoustic treatment, I did no measurements. I just... <laughs> Put stuff up around and made it look random enough that it would you know sound like it would be doing the job um and i and i mix as quiet as i can with the door open
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're speaking my language now i like these words yeah
1: yeah 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 i've always i have always fantasized about you know studio mark three would be um i'll put a little bit more energy and effort into the mathematics. Um, but but that's that's the next project yeah, yeah yeah and now this one it does just fine and you know everything gets mastered somewhere else so if the, you know if the mix is done quietly and carefully um it tends to transport really well
0: No, oh, cool i mean i'm, yeah. I'm what, want to get into some of the nitty-gritty of sort of the, the your recording processes um i've I, I mean, the, the first place my mind jumps to is some lovely pictures. I think they're quite a few years ago now of um, you miking up a drum kit and with mono overhead. I don't even think there was a kick mic on it. but There may well have been. It might not have been in shot. And then a microphone behind the player's seat. And I love that. And, you know, they clearly, I, I'm not sure what mic it was. Do you have RCA mic down there? Or some, I do. Yeah, some yeah. nice big ribbons or tubes that you have.
1: Yeah. Um, there's no one set way I do it for every session. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know what session that one was. Or I can't was remember. You thought you weren't thinking of the album. You
0: no, know? it was just a picture I saw um, that, mm-hmm. I, I, that sort of yeah. got my attention. Yeah.
1: I generally like general rule of thumb has always been less is more yes. for me. Um. So, but look, ultimately my. My setup for each session always comes down to what the band want to create. So mm-hmm. I always ask them for a reference album. You know, I'll, I'll ask with with relation to this project, what are your two favourite records? What do we get? What are we aiming for? Because I don't want to impose my less is more on a project that is obviously one that requires more. Um, so first and foremost, it comes down to genre. But yeah. I love to use as few microphones on the drum kit as possible and then fill out the sound from there if people are still wanting more detail or more clarity of a given element. So yeah, I will often start with a single overhead or do a classic, you know, a Glenn Johns-esque setup where there's two microphones capturing pretty much all of it. Yeah. And then you'll probably want a kick mic and you might want a snare. And then if the toms still need to be a bit more hectic, we'll stick more mics on the toms, whatever. So I generally start thin and get thick, yes. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and But as for mic choice, it always then comes down to the instrument, you know, how, how or the instrument and genre, you know. If I'm using a ribbon overhead in any of those photos, it's probably because the player has got really bright cymbals or they're just smashing them or like I need it to be darker. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or maybe they wanted a, they might have wanted a a 50s, 60s American sound. And, you know, well, then obviously we'll use ribbons because that's all they used until um, later on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's no, I couldn't give you one answer for, for the drum setup.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's cool. I know, I like that approach of starting small and getting bigger as, as necessary. I mean, presumably, yeah. you know, if it's you, depending on obviously the genre of the project, but then if it's you mixing it, then you know what's going to be required as the mixer. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the things I, com- I, I not struggle with necessarily, but I, I have to bear in mind from when I'm doing my drum recording is... I don't know often who's mixing it you know I might be working yeah. with the artist directly or a yeah. producer who's then going to forward it yeah. onto a mix engineer yeah. and you know so I, there needs to be plenty of options but
1: yeah
0: same same as you I you know often when I do my rough mixes to send to the artist to work with it's um you know the three four microphones and uh mm. and they always they always gush over the mix which is really nice but and I think yeah. it probably yeah. surprises them when they find out how minimal it yeah. actually is
1: well it probably just suggests that you've captured it well you know and you you absolutely can capture a drum kit well with four channels um you can you can capture it equally as well with two channels but as you know um the 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 ability to then fit it into a mix of a recording that already exists becomes problematic you need more elements to tweak yes more channels is is easier in a sense for something complex that already exists but in my world, it's it's the other way around. It's back to front. It's like I will <clears throat> always mic up the drum kit first. And the band is there. They're all there with me. And from from the first microphone I put up, I'll be having them come into the control room and listen to that. And then I look at them and go, where to from here? You mm-hmm. know, so I I actually don't. I try to make as little creative decisions as possible. I try to yeah. leave every decision up to the band from the get-go. So I'll, I will have already had a discussion with the whoever's in charge of the project. There's, there's almost always somebody in charge of the production in a band mm-hmm. and I let them steer the ship creatively and I try to just facilitate the sound for them. So I will have already had some idea of how many microphones I'm going to put up that day on the drum kit based on what they've sent me. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll also be limited by the tape recorder that we're using. So again, back to the original discussions about genre, you know, do they want to make a a record that is like a 1974 record or do they actually want to make a record that's 1969? Mm -hmm. And so that'll be the decision as to whether we're using 16 tracks or eight. Um, And if we're using eight, then we're probably bussing the drums down to two tracks, maybe three, if it's a power trio. (laughs) But if it's not a power trio, then you're probably going to only have two tracks of drums, maybe even one. So it depends. Do you want stereo drums or do you want mono drums? Because some people want to make like a, I don't know, like heaps of overdubs on an eight-track album. Um, but they still want it to be eight tracks. So we'll just have we'll just have one track of drums. But that might mean that could mean four or five mics. Yes, down to one track, mm-hmm. or it could mean one mic onto one track, which, as you know, is, is a completely different sound. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, it's interesting.
0: I, I love the the way that you put that about you facilitating what the the sort of artist wants because it might not be that they necessarily know in in sort of your world, your recording world, what is required specifically to get the sound that they're after, but they know that they can can communicate that sound to you and you're um, open enough and receptive enough to hear what they want and go, this is how you do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. enjoy that. Like, they can definitely tell me which album is their favourite and chances are I know it or mm. I'll make the effort to listen to it um, or maybe even get it, like running the studio has become a reason for me to collect more records. <laughs> yeah. so I'll often um, purchase a record that I don't own purely for the fact that I need to hear it.
0: Of course, to, you do. Yeah. <laughs> to, you
1: know, for my professional development. Yeah, so, um,
0: absolutely.
1: <laughs> enrolling that into my tax returns every year, professional development fund. Um, <clears throat> But, yeah, it's, if, if I'm not nailing the record that they were imagining in their mind for, for their own one, then I'm not doing the job properly. So, And I think that most bands know how they want to sound. They do. And they don't need um, an engineer or a producer who's going to change that
0: So there we have it, the first half of my conversation with Alex Bennett of Sound Recordings. Um, you can check his uh, studio out on uh, Instagram, which is at Sound Recordings. There's some beautiful pictures up there of, um, of his studio. And um, yeah, just looking at it now as I speak to you, you can see <laughs> there's tons of brickwork and some beautiful rugs. I mean, every studio has got to have beautiful rugs. Um as I've <laughs> joked about with quite a lot of people on my Instagram. Um but yeah, go and go and look at some of the pictures. It's a, it's a really pretty space um and will give you a good insight as to what we've discussed. Um, so yet yeah, the second part of that will be coming up next week. Um, if you'd like to support this podcast by buying a mug, you can do that at my website, all you need is drums.com. There is a link to the shop there. Thank you to everybody that has bought one already. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can also do that through the website or my email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. Uh, yes, that's it. So I'd just like to say a huge thank you to Rory Hancock for editing and uploading this podcast, to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, and to David Henshaw for the artwork he supplies every episode. And uh, you guys have a fantastic week, and I will be back next Tuesday with the second half of this episode. Bye! Bye.